The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. Kindness is defined as having qualities of friendliness, generosity and consideration, and having a genuine concern and care for others. In fact, science has shown that devoting resources to others, rather to oneself, can enhance our sense of well-being. So today I speak with Dr. Rebecca Ray, who is a clinical psychologist, writer and speaker, to talk about the art of self-kindness, her most recent book. And I'm also going to speak to Rebecca Ray about dealing with vicarious trauma, as so many Australians are recently suffering from the devastating droughts and bushfires, and learning about this form of trauma may actually help us emotionally heal. So today we're with Dr. Rebecca Ray, and we're going to be talking about vicarious trauma, but also about her most recent book, Self-Kindness, which I'm a massive fan, so I'm having a moment. So don't mind me, Rebecca. Uh, (laughs) um, And so I've got huge admiration for your book, and it really spoke to me, and I'm sure it's spoken to so many other people that are going to be listening to this interview. But I also wanted to touch on Being Australians, living in Australia, we're currently experiencing the devastation of of bushfires and droughts. And one of your most interesting posts recently was about vicarious traumatisation. I just wondered if you could talk about that. Yeah, sure. So vicarious traumatisation is the state that sometimes some people find themselves in when they over-empathise to trauma or disasters happening around them but not directly to them. And what can happen is those people start to experience symptoms that we would associate with acute trauma, things like not being able to sleep well, not being able to concentrate, being uh, very preoccupied with the, the disaster or the trauma that's happening around them and not being able to escape that information. And in fact, sometimes what happens is the opposite. They seek it out and overexpose themselves to that information. They then start to feel this sense of helplessness or hopelessness, that there's nothing that can be done because it's obviously not happening to them and therefore there is not much that they can do. And so then who's most vulnerable, those people that are more empathetic than others? Definitely sensitive people, highly sensitive people are are more vulnerable. People who are more exposed to the media are more vulnerable. So, And by that, I don't mean media professionals, although definitely I know of media professionals who have experienced compassion fatigue and, and the emotional burnout that comes with being exposed to devastating situations over and over again. But what I mean is people who um, I guess are in the age where they have exposure to the internet all day, every day. And what happens with trauma in our generation or our, our today's day and age really is that once upon a time, you know, you might have had to wait three months to get a letter about a war that was happening on the other side of the world and the impact that that had on someone that you knew. Now we have it instantaneously about trauma that's happening all over the world at all times. And so there is no escape from it. And what happens is for highly sensitive people, they very quickly empathise with the human 
lands, with the animals, with the habitat, if we're talking about Australia and the bushfires that we've experienced. And that is incredibly draining when you over empathize to situations that are happening around you, but there's nothing that you can do. So action is the antidote is what, what happens with that kind of anxiety is that we want to be able to fix or to do something to help. And when there's not much that you can do because the fires are just going to continue until they're put out or until we have rain like we're having now, let's hope it's getting where it needs to go. Those people then just feel helpless and really vulnerable and often a sense of being frightened for themselves and for the world at large. And so then how can it be overcome when you're feeling so perhaps in that moment of helplessness when you're observing, watching trauma happening, suffering happening? Yeah, there's two things that I would suggest, um, perhaps not in the order that you would expect. The first thing that I would suggest is to, uh, if you're noticing that kind of emotional burnout occur for you, is to take a break from it. You might think that the first thing that I would suggest would be to do something, but it's actually not the first thing that I would suggest if you're really feeling drained by the images. Um, I would suggest instead to just step back from it for a while. Self-care is a really interesting topic because we are the only ones that can do it for ourselves. And I think particularly in Western society, we're exposed to so many choices and demands on our shoulders on a day-to-day basis, that it can be really easy to give out your energy before you give your energy inwards. And so what happens is we become preoccupied with getting all the things done on our to-do list and making sure everybody else's needs are met, but pushing ourselves to the background. And what that then results in is a lack of personal resources available to be able to just survive the day. So you start being in a state where you're just going through the motions rather than thriving. Self-care is a really interesting one because we're the only one that can then do something about that. And then how do you define then self-kindness? Self-kindness is a broader term that includes self-care, but it also includes other things like the way you talk to yourself, the way you treat yourself at large. I would define self-kindness as being the approach that you have to your own humanness. And so when was that very powerful for yourself? When did you say, you know, in your life, you know, what were the the triggers that made you realise, oh, I'm not being kind to myself? So many. (laughs) Um, I I think when you have a personality that's ambitious and um, I guess tends towards anxiety like I do, then you get very intimately acquainted with perfectionism. And perfectionism is really associated with uh, very critical talk internally. And I've taken a long time to work on my inner talk to be able to, I guess, frame my relationship with myself in a cushion rather than in sharp edges where I was the one creating the inner storm. You know, the storm was there because I was the one putting those standards and expectations on myself. And where that's shown, to give you a recent example, where, that, where that's shown up, that work has been really valuable, is parenting. <laughs> I just wasn't prepared for how complex parenting would be in terms of showing up for this little person that I'm completely responsible for and just 
loving the life out of him so much that his very well-being is the most important thing to me. So I'm constantly evaluating is what I'm doing okay? Am I providing the best environment that I possibly can for him to flourish in? And because no parent is perfect and there is no rule book, being able to be kind to myself has allowed me to be able to enjoy the process rather than attacking myself for not being this or not being that throughout my um, journey. So is kindness, do you think, an innate quality you're sort of born with or is it something that you're taught? That's a really interesting question. I, I, I think we certainly develop personalities that are perhaps more gentle than others. And But what happens is how that's shaped in our parental environment then largely plays out in terms of how we express those personality attributes. So you might be a really gentle kid and if you've got parents who nurture that, and really encourage that side of you, then you might find that you grow up to be naturally kind and giving. If you are a gentle kid and you've got parents that go, harden up, you know, you need to be stronger, you need to, you know, boys don't cry, all that kind of stuff, be a big girl. If you've got parents who are critical and who push you to be more, um, I guess, harder in the world, then you might find that that part of you is still there, but it doesn't necessarily express like it would for somebody else. And so why is self-kindness so important to our to our sense of well-being? As far as I'm concerned, if you're not kind to yourself, then you can't be authentically kind to others. So what happens is your relationship with yourself directly reflects Uh, your relationship with the world at large and people in it. When we're kinder to ourselves, we are naturally kinder to others. Now, I'm not saying that you're not being kind to others if you're being harsh on yourself, Um, but I'm just saying over time, if you are very harsh on yourself, then you'll tend to harden towards the world and the world will harden towards you. So your experience of what happens in the world will be harsher, more abrasive, because that's creating internally for yourself when we create a gentle compassionate world internally when we allow ourselves to be imperfect and to be human and to just show up as we are today then we soften against the world and we're therefore open to others open to receiving help open to receiving love and the world therefore is a softer place for us to be doesn't mean that bad things don't happen uh sorry don't still happen but it does mean that we experience those bad things within a cushion of self-kindness. So then what what does a lack of self-kindness look like? Many things. (laughs) 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 It's kind of like where to start with that. I guess a lack of self-kindness can, it can manifest in a lot of ways. Internally, negative self-talk and attacking critical self-talk. Um, it may also look like abandoning yourself, and by that I mean not keeping promises that you make to yourself, not showing up for yourself, um, doing things that, that actively sabotage your efforts or your goals or your dreams, but it might, it might also look like caring for everybody else before you care for yourself and, in fact, perhaps just giving up on caring for yourself altogether. And then it also looks like things such as loose boundaries, you know, saying yes when you really should be saying no because you don't have time to do that. 
giving away yourself before you stop to evaluate whether or not you have the resources left to give. I think that was one of the very powerful messages near the end of your book um, that I found that it's okay to say no, it's okay to put boundaries up. I think that was a really some really important messages that came through the book. I'm so glad you received those messages. Sometimes when you write something, it's hard to know whether or not it gets across. <laughs> so that's that makes really me really happy to hear. Yeah, I think um, especially if you've got such a caring nature and and you love that about yourself as a quality about yourself, saying no can sometimes feel very, you feel very guilt-ridden. I don't know if I'm just talking for myself, but you can feel guilty and you spend a lot of your life feeling guilty if you do say no and then you you have this internal battle. Um, but certainly reading your book gave me such greater empathy for myself to be okay about saying no, that that's a boundary to saying, you know, is, if, is it giving you joy? Is it uh, nurturing yourself? And if it's not, then it's it's okay to say no rather than feeling so guilty. Absolutely. I think it's really important to be able to evaluate guilt in terms of necessary guilt and unnecessary guilt. And as women in particular, I think we become experts at buying into, feeding into unnecessary guilt. And it takes some unlearning to be able to come back to a place where we can re-evaluate that guilt as, is this really necessary? Because most of the guilt that we feel isn't based on doing anything wrong at all. There is some guilt that is actually really necessary and very useful for being able to overcome mistakes and rectify uh, hurts that we might have accidentally made towards other people. We need guilt in that situation to be able to atone and remedy whatever it is that we could have done better. But most of the time, particularly when we're talking about self-kindness, we're talking about unnecessary guilt, that guilt that kind of hangs over your head that is related to nothing but the expectations that you're placing on yourself or the expectations you assume is, you assume is coming from other people. So true. And what is a lack of self-kindness? How does it actually hold you back in your life? For me, I think the best way that I can summarise that is a lack of self-kindness is really about um, degrading your sense of self-worth. So the most common, not even complaint, I can't say it's a problem because it's more a state or a sense, but the most common thing that I see in people who struggle with being kind to themselves is feeling not good enough and really buying into this sense that they're unworthy in some way. That then plays out in your relationships, in your work, in your parenting, in your hobbies, in your capacity to do something creative where you become convinced that you're not good enough in some way so you you don't show up as your full self or perhaps you don't even show up as all, at all. And then is that is it only really perhaps people that have suffered trauma in their childhood that have those issues or really you can have a perfectly happy childhood and still struggle, have those struggles of self-worth um, as an adult? Oh, no, absolutely. You can have a happy childhood and still struggle with that. I mean, a happy childhood really helps to develop a sense of worthiness, but as human beings, we're actually primed to feel not worthy, believe it or not. So it's in our DNA to constantly compare ourselves negatively with other people because once upon a time that helped us to continually strive to do 
the right thing by the clan. You know, when you're roaming the earth in clans 100,000 years ago, it's really helpful if you continue to think, oh, am I measuring up? Am I doing the right thing? Am I, am I contributing to the clan in a meaningful way? Because if you don't, you run the risk of being kicked out, in which case you die, or having the clan kill you. So it, for, it's the survival mechanism for us to constantly evaluate ourselves and wonder whether or not we're measuring up. What tends to happen for people who have had happy childhoods is that doesn't necessarily stop them from going out into the world and doing their thing. For people who have experienced unhappy childhoods or trauma in some way, shape or form, they can start to develop beliefs very, very strongly about the fact unworthiness is true and they then buy into that and it feeds into how they show up in the world. I think most people at some point in their lives struggle with the idea of whether or not they're good enough. They struggle with feelings of worthiness. People who have been traumatised definitely have bigger challenges around that and they might need to do some work, whether it be therapeutically or some kind of self-help or both, where they work on, I guess, shaking those beliefs around what the trauma meant for their worthiness. And certainly when that trauma happens in childhood, those beliefs can be stronger because that's when most of our beliefs are developed about ourselves and other people and about the world at large is when we're kids. And those beliefs are um, reinforced by our primary caregivers. And if you've had trauma during those formative years, then yes, absolutely, the way you feel about yourself can be dramatically affected. But that doesn't mean that you're then sentenced for the rest of your life to feeling unworthy. There is work that you can do around that. And in fact, some of the people that I've seen that have been traumatized possibly would never have come to do that kind of work without the trauma in their background. The traumas resulted in what we might call post-traumatic growth. So um, they've been able to come through the trauma and develop a sense of resilience about themselves so that they see themselves as stronger and braver than they ever would have been without it. So I can't say that, you know, trauma results in bad and no trauma results in good. No human experience is that common. And in fact, what, what I'm hearing, what you're saying is in fact, with support, with self-awareness, with with people around you that are helping you through that process, giving you the love, the nurturing, the care, the guidance, that trauma can actually lead to great self-growth and strength. And so why is it then so easy to often be kind to others but not to ourselves? Why is it such a struggle? <laughs> I think one of the big things is the guilt that we spoke about before. So we can give outwardly far more easily than we can give to ourselves because we buy into this idea that it might be selfish or it might be judged by other people as being some kind of negative quality about us if we put ourselves first. The problem with this kind of mindset is that it does get in the way of self-care and self-care is absolutely essential for well-being. So I think from a socially acceptable point of view, it's more acceptable in some circles to give to other people before we give to ourselves. And if we buy into that and don't stop to evaluate it for what it is and how that could affect our lives, if we actually believe that, then we get stuck in this idea that 
there's something wrong with us if we put ourselves first. We're narcissistic, you know. We're, we're selfish and therefore we're not the person that we want to be. And so do you think you can actually teach children to be kind and, and also self-kind? You know, how do you um, teach children at a young age then to self-care, be kind to themselves? I think all of that is through modelling. So what is shown to the child is what the child will replicate. So if you've got a small person in your world and you demonstrate kindness, so I've actually got an interesting example of this. My, I have a 10-year-old dog who was my baby before Bennett <laughs> and um, he got a, we've had a whole lot of rain here recently. He got a grass seed stuck in between his toes that ended up becoming infected. We had to take him to the vet, get his foot bandaged. He couldn't walk on his foot for a while and um, we're in the process of healing it. Bennett was very aware that Henry had a sore toe. And, in fact, so Bennett's turning two next month, very, very small, doesn't obviously have the mental capacity for me to talk about self-kindness or or even really to conceptualise of what kindness is. But when there's a bandage on a pet's foot, it's very clear that something's not right. He was aware of that. Henry has a sore toe. He could say that and, in fact, repeated it over and over again. What we then practised, and we do practise with the dogs full stop, is we need to be kind and gentle with the dogs. But when he would go towards them with his normal kind of boisterous self, we would stop and remind him to be kind and gentle, and that meant soft pats and, you know, this this kind of modelling of physical kindness to be able to then insert in his brain that this is our kind way of being. He needs extra care right now because he's sore. And I think when you raise a child in an environment where you speak about kindness and therefore then you demonstrate what that kindness looks like, this is the key here, right? You could talk about being kind, but if you then show that child unkind, that's what sticks in their head. And it's just so lovely to see children being kind to children, you know, when when a little friend in their classroom hurts themselves and another child will go up and, and um, soothe them and put their hand around. It's just so beautiful to see actually and encouraging more of it. And a conversation around it, I think, is a really powerful thing. The fact that it's now called out and it's now seen, you know, Sally's being kind to Ben. Like that conversation around it makes it powerful to, for children. It's not just something that goes unnoticed. It's something that's actually really powerful for inclusion and also for their sense of self and power in the world. If you show a child that they can be kind to another child and impact that child's world, then they increase their sense of self-efficacy. There is a way that I can impact the world by what I do. And when you when you leave child with that sense of empowerment, then that impacts on how they move out into the world. And so then do you think kindness is probably a, a secret weapon to really a strategy towards stopping bullying. And I and I when I talk about bullying, it's not only happening in classrooms, you're seeing it in the workplace, which is just so sad. Sad and disgusting, really. <laughs> so just it's really easy to become disappointed with humankind if you just take one scroll of the internet, you know? Um, I know. <laughs> and what people say to each other on social media, it's um oh, it's just uh amplified you know absolutely having a screen kind of mask you 
allows people to be their most base selves. And I, I think in terms of kindness being a super weapon, uh, sorry, a, a superpower, not, not a super weapon, I, I think this is about coming back to teaching children that we are all human and we are all one promoting this idea that it's not us and them, it's us together. And how can we include each other and treat each other in a way that respects our humanness and respects our kind of underlying need to be loved and belong? I think it's very important to create uh, an environment of inclusion and not one of exclusion. It's not about differences. It's about how we are still at our very nature, just human beings, all the same. Yeah, well, it comes back to the species. Like we are, as animals, we need to belong. When we raise that a level, then yes, it becomes tribal, as in we need our people and we need people to feel close to. The more sets of people or groups of people that you have in your life that you feel like you belong to, then that's an antidote to all of the ills that you might feel as part of your human experience. But at our basic need, our basic animal need, you know, even below that is just to be loved and to belong. And then what are some self-kind practices that you implement every day? Quiet time. <laughs> Do you? I, yes. I'm, I am an introvert 150%. And one of the things that I really need is time without noise. And so I make sure that I have some form of time without noise where I can just stop and regroup. And I also have a practice where I make sure that I connect with the people that I love in a very mindful way. Now, I know that might sound like outward energy, but for me, that's about coming back to my values of how I want to love and be loved. And so I make sure that I create time where, uh, for instance, with Bennett, I'm sitting there with him, making eye contact with him, having a conversation with him about the dinosaur that we're playing with. We're actually connecting about this. We're not just existing in the same room, but we're connecting and it's the same with my wife. Those are self-kindness practices for me because it allows me to come back to what are the values that I'm living by today and how I love is my most important value. And that's... Uh being in that moment, it's just so sacred, isn't it? It is. But if you don't create it, well, at least for me, I'm busy enough that if I don't actively create that moment and mindfully participate in that moment, then I could go days without really connecting, you know, certainly be in the same space. We we work from home, like we're around each other all the time. But if you don't stop to really go, how are you? No, no I mean, seriously, how are you? That then it just, the, the moment passes you by, you don't get that connection. And it's that difference between living, um, really living consciously, isn't it? Yeah, living consciously within the, um, within the system. <laughs> within the everyday things we have to do. Exactly, exactly. Understanding that still the washing's got to be done and the floors have got to be mopped and um, there's, you know, interviews to be done and all the, all the kind of stuff that shows up in the, in the world, particularly in an unstructured structured environment where you work from home, but still carving out that space where at the end of the day my 80-year-old self will go, I'm so glad that you stopped and played dinosaurs with Bennett. You know, if I die tomorrow, 
then what's going to what's going to matter is the conversation that I had with my wife this morning. It's not going to be. It's what's not going to matter is whether or not I returned my emails this morning. It's whether or not I looked her in the eye. Yeah, and then can self kindness then prevent burnout? I think so. Yeah, but having said that, burnout is a complex beast. It's almost an entirely other. We could do an. an another whole episode on burnout because it's related to so many other things like our expectations of ourselves and what's happening to give us little wins versus not having your goals manifest in the way that you want them to. And so self-kindness, what I think um, its role is in burnout is being able to have you not hit the wall so quickly. If you're being kind to yourself, then you can work hard knowing that you're continually replenishing your resources. If you're not being kind to yourself, then you need to be aware of the fact that if you're working hard and if you're giving a lot out into the world, and I'm talking about parenting and hobbies and all the things that show up, not just work and, and you know, jobs and career, but if you're not being kind to yourself in that, then what you're actually doing is you're contributing to the depletion of your resources. You're not putting them back in. So what self-kindness does is helps to fill up your tank. So what are those ways that you can fill your tank back up and not dry out so much? You know, the simplest way that I could explain it, if someone wants one thing that they can do today that is kind for themselves, I would encourage them to keep the bar low. So I'm not going to give you 15,000 strategies because that's going to overwhelm people. But what I would say is just say no. Say no to adding something else to your plate. Say no to the thing that feels like it goes against your intuition. Say no to the thing that you really know that you don't have a yes available for. Even though it might be hard, even though it might be difficult to feel like you're disappointing someone else or letting someone down, Say no in the service of preserving yourself because I guarantee you that it's easier to say no now now than it is to deal with a yes that you didn't want to have on your plate in the first place. So sometimes the kindest thing we can do for ourselves is not to keep putting stuff on the plate. Mm, so true. I, I, I only, and it's such good, very wise what you just said then. It's easier to say no um, up front than say yes and then have to say, because I only just recently dealt with this myself last week and I thought if I'd only just said no, because I knew that it was at a time that I was going to be really pushing and and as you say, your gut tells you, you know, if you listen to your intuition and give yourself that time to listen to it, it was saying no, but I just, that compulsion to please, the compulsion to say yes, but it takes practice, doesn't it? It does. And I think it's about getting really good at the practice of it, at the, at the assessing, do I have space for this in my life, on my plate, um, with my emotional, physical and mental energy? Do I have a yes to give to this? And one of the things that you can do to help that practice along is to just not respond immediately. It's a bit easier, obviously, if the person's not standing directly in front of you, if it's an email request that comes through, um, and to also work out your boundaries. And then what are some quick warning signs that we should be self-aware when we really, we really should be saying maybe a no or implement a boundary? Uh, your gut. <laughs> your gut, your intuition will get a little bit loud and probably be 
thumping on the wall of your chest to go, this doesn't feel right. If you're saying yes in the service of keeping somebody happy, that is a major warning sign that, you know, you might be crossing a boundary of yours. Now, I'm not saying that keeping someone else happy doesn't keep you happy. I'm just saying be mindful of when that might be the only reason that you're doing it. So how can we be a better best friend to ourselves? Step number one, really be mindful of the way that you speak to yourself. The environment that you create within is based on the way you talk to yourself. If that talk is full of labels and attack and judgment, it's going to be not a very nice place to live. So be mindful of your self-talk in the first place. The second thing is to stay close to your values. It becomes much easier to be able to cope with uh, challenging emotions like disappointment and guilt and Um, oh my goodness, am I doing the right thing when you stay close to your why? What is your purpose? What are the things that are driving you in this day at this moment? So if you're at work, then what are your values at work? What what type of business person or career person or, uh, or worker do you want to be today? And what are you living by? The closer you stay by your values, then the easier it is to make decisions that are difficult because you make decisions in line with your values. And the third thing is to really be aware of what your boundaries are because, unfortunately, nobody's going to set them for you. (laughs) You need to know where your lines are. And sometimes I will admit a lot of the time we only learn where those lines are once they're crossed. I'm not talking about physical safety here. Most, most people know where those lines are. I'm talking about emotional safety and I'm talking about personal resources to give away, time, money, mental, physical, psychological and emotional energy. They're the things that we give away and sometimes if we give them away mindlessly, you'll end up tapped out long before everyone else around you and therefore you're no good to anyone. If you don't know where your lines are, you can't communicate to other people genuinely and authentically what you have available and you'll end up emptying your tank. And from that place, what you're likely to experience is resentment, frustration, perhaps even anger. And unfortunately, if you didn't set a boundary then you're the only one that's copying the consequence of that. You need to be able to set those boundaries first, communicate where they are, and then enforce those boundaries so that you're able to give what you have available to give and not more than that. Oh, well, thank you so much. That was just very powerful to end this interview. And um, I can't thank you enough for your time and uh, because I know how precious it is. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with us all. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure, Danae. A big thank you to Dr. Rebecca Ray for sharing her knowledge with us today on Meditalk. And to learn more about Dr. Rebecca Ray, visit rebeccaray.com.au. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of Meditalk, visit meditalk.com.au. And if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.